When you sing a song like that, you reflect on God's holiness. And I consider the fact that I'm going to walk up here and now take upon my tongue the glories of the gospel. I'm not worthy of this. What an awesome responsibility. Pray as we open the word of God together. Pray for our hearts. Pray for my tongue and lips to reflect Christ. Let's pray. You are holy, thrice holy God. We are sinners. We would have no hope to stand in your presence and to join the throng of angels and saints of old apart from Jesus Christ. We'd ask that you would make Christ glorious to our hearts. Father, our meditations, our thinking, the praise from our lips, could not express the grandeur of your Son, the one in whom you have declared this is your beloved Son, whom you are fully pleased, you eternally delight in. How could we measure that worth? So we simply reflect what you have said about your Son. We echo and we rejoice in Christ and ask that you would make him more glorious to our hearts. We would treasure him. And we thank you that you have given us an eternity to look forward to in reflecting and knowing and growing in our love for Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. International travel can be a daunting experience. I mean, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to travel to India a few times that I have. I, I, you asked me what I, who I am. I kind of view myself in light of a homeschooler. I was homeschooled through high school think I'd be crossing an ocean. But it's daunting. You get there and you find a foreign culture, foreign language, customs, even animals. What are they doing here? This cow walking across, this bull walking across the field here, across the road, and waiting for it. Or some big rat. And so it's intimidating. It's great comfort, though, when you walk into the airport and you find somebody that you were expecting to stand there maybe with a sign with your name on it. There's some identity, some hope in the midst of the chaos. What was amazing to me, though, is when uh, Pastor Pat and I were asked on a couple Thursdays ago to preach with a translator into Marathi. And you, you walk up there and you see different color, different culture, different language. I mean, we're not going to be able to communicate. And to realize, though, that we are one family in Christ. To hear the song, Christ Alone, sung in Marathi. <laughs> but I, I know what it is in English. and So you can somewhat hum along and sing along without being too much of a distraction. But to see the same scriptures opened, and we're all intently pouring into them, one translated in Marathi, one in English. In some sense, you could say, there's one language here. It's the gospel one king here, Jesus Christ. And it brought such encouragement to my heart. That's how I opened the introduction of that particular sermon. Paul is a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was taught in the Old Testament scriptures. And he's writing to encourage a Greek cultured church, if you will, the Thessalonians. It's a Greek city. It was much like what we think of the Hollywood of California or New York City of the East Coast. Very well-to-do, very affluent, prosperous, very immoral. A lot went on in the Greek culture. Paul writes to the Thessalonians to encourage them. To encourage them in the gospel. Because that's the mark of the family of Christ the gospel. And so encouraged is he by their gospel ministry and their love for the gospel that he says this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27. Chapter 5, verse 27. I put you under oath, under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In chapter 1, 1 and 2, he said, grace to you. 
And now, as the scripture is to be read, grace will be with them. They're visited with the grace of Christ in the reading of scripture. And he says, I put you under oath. You must read this to the brothers of Christ. But we look at the character of this letter, and we see Paul's gospel ministry, and we see the Thessalonians' gospel ministry. There is a mutual encouragement in the midst of suffering and affliction. That's the context of Thessalonians. You're going to see in conflict, in affliction, in suffering throughout this book. But the highlight is the gospel in the midst of affliction and suffering. So let's develop a little bit of background for this book. And in this case, what we're going to do is we are going to cover six visible manifestations of a Christ-centered life, a a gospel-driven life in the book of Thessalonians as Paul identifies with them around the gospel. What is the mark of a Christian body? The church. We'll look at six of those, but before we look at those over the, the book of First Thessalonians as a whole, we'll cover the five chapters. It'll be weighted on the front end as we look at the gospel and lighter on the back end. And for now, we're going to dip into chapters two and three to get some of the background here. And so we'll cover these two chapters in our background. But, but first, let's look at the highlight of the gospel. Chapter one, verse five. I want you to see the emphasis of the gospel. Because, chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So you see the gospel personified as visiting them. Chapter 2, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So twice we've seen suffering conflict declaring the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Chapter 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Chapter 3, verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. What is the gospel? Well, the heart of the gospel is substitution. The gospel is the announcement, the declaration, that the Son of God has condescended. He's come down into time and space. He has added to his eternal divine nature a human nature. He's fully God, fully man. He did so in order that he might be born under the law. As Jesus said, he's come to fulfill the law, to obey the law. And the height of his obedience led to the culmination of the work on the cross where he took the penalty of the law. The promise of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, you look at your own law keeping and declare it transgression and rebellion. There's nothing good I can do. And you rest in Christ's obedience. The Bible promises that through faith, Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience will be credited to your account. And your guilt will be credited to Christ's account, paid in full at the cross. This is the promise of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul describes it in these terms. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We could say it in this way. The richness of Christ's righteous life is credited to the guilty sinner through faith, while the poverty of the sinner's guilt is credited to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5.8 tells us Christ's obedience, there was much suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It was a horrific act of substitution on our behalf to take the eternal punishment of the believing sinner's guilt. 
Is it then any surprise that God providentially highlights the power of the gospel in the Christian's life through suffering, through conflict, through affliction? Paul, in his letter to the Colossian church, wrote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, Here's the purpose statement, to make the word of God fully known. Paul recognized that he would endure suffering, not to add to the work of Christ. It's gospel ministry, that kind of suffering, in order to advance the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, drop with me there if you would, chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, in the sphere of affliction. That's where they receive the word. The message of the suffering of Christ on our behalf was received in the context of suffering and affliction, hardship. Paul acknowledges that as a minister of the gospel, he suffers. And the Thessalonians who received the gospel, they would suffer. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. We've seen it already, but just underline it again. Paul, as a minister of the gospel, is suffering. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So the Thessalonians were quite aware of the suffering of Paul and Silas. We have only to look at Acts 16, and we read about Paul's ministry in Philippi. Lydia from Thyatira visits Philippi and hears the gospel and is saved. God opens her heart. But the Lord has plans to save a jailer and his family. They need to hear the gospel. And so the Lord knits suffering circumstances for Paul in which he's dragged before the court, beaten, bruised, sent to jail, locked up. He proclaims the gospel to a jailer who happens to be providentially, obviously, sovereignly, is in the jail as a jailer carrying out his duties. How was he to hear the gospel? Through suffering. Paul's suffering. He would proclaim the work, the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Well, if that wasn't enough, he heads off to Thessalonica after Philippi. Preaches the gospel in the synagogue and a number of Greeks are saved. And as a result, a, a wicked mob is formed. You can read this in Acts 17 to attack the house, church, where Paul was staying. The Thessalonian believers, wanting to see the gospel continue to go forward, take Paul and Silas and lower them in a basket at night, and they escape to Athens. But Paul's concerned. Have they received the word? Is there a living faith? Is it true saving faith? He'd warn them that they're going to face suffering if they proclaim the gospel and believe the gospel. Would that affliction demonstrate that they had really latched on to the gospel and true saving faith? And so we see Paul's concern for the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So they knew that while they were in Philippi, they were going through suffering. And he tells them, if you've received the gospel, you are going to suffer. It comes with the territory. And humorously, I think of Paul and Silas like Winnie the Pooh. I guess I'm still living my past with little kids. But Winnie the Pooh, walking around with a little cloud over his head. Tut, tut, it looks like rain. Here's Paul and Silas. Everywhere they go, there's a cloud of suffering, thunder and lightning all around them. And everyone knows about it. In fact, when the persecutors took... The believers to court, they said this, these men who have upset the world have come here also, saying that there is another King Jesus, Acts 17, verses 6 and 7. They've upset the world. They knew about it. Because everywhere the gospel went, they're suffering. Paul is concerned. Have the Thessalonians truly received the gospel? Is there a living faith in Christ? And so chapter 2, verse 17, we see Paul's heart and motivation for writing the book of Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 17. 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Drop down to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul's concerned if they receive the gospel. But he respects them. They want them to stay in Athens protected. So he's going to send a co-worker. What kind of co-worker? What is this co-worker committed to? The gospel. Because if they're going to really believe in Christ, they need the gospel. And if it's a true, genuine faith that's going to grow, they need the gospel. So who are you going to send? A gospel worker. Timothy. And what would he do? Establish and exhort them in their faith. They would grow in their faith in the midst of suffering and affliction. Verse 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we're destined for this. Drop down with me to verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. It wouldn't be a genuine faith. It'd be a vain faith. And so he's concerned. Is it genuine? Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, you see how often distress and affliction is underlined in this book, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if we are standing fast in the Lord. What would make you say, now I really live. This brings my heart to great rejoicing. I'm excited and thrilled in the midst of affliction. To hear that your faith is genuine and you are standing fast to the Lord. And so I've got to send a gospel minister to encourage that faith with the gospel. Paul is excited that they are marked by the gospel. Why would Paul and Silas be willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ? Why would the Thessalonian believers be willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ? Because obviously this very message is a catalyst for suffering. Well, this is where we look at the six characteristics of the gospel that mark a Christ-centered life, a gospel-driven life. This is the mark of a, a Christian family, the church. The first manifestation of the gospel and a Christ-centered life is faith in Christ, faith in Christ. Here we are going to try to cover as much as we can of First Thessalonians, but we'll have the wait in chapter 1. And we've covered now 2 and 3 to get some of the context. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We often, in our human-centered lens, want to look at, oh, the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, and we ask, how can I muster that work and labor and steadfastness up? And we forget that faith, love, and hope are bound together and grounded on Christ Jesus, verse 3, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that faith, love, and hope are drawing from the rich soils of Jesus Christ. That's the sphere of control, Christ Jesus. Paul does not say, well, I'm, I'm excited that you're healthy, wealthy, wise, prosperous. He doesn't say, I'm excited about your ecstatic experiences. You've been healing, demonstrating miracles, tongues or you've had personal visions or voices from God. Nope. He says, I'm excited because of the gospel work in your life, that your faith, love, and hope are rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why is he so thrilled? Because the statement, the phrase, in Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ, is shorthand for the gospel. We understand shorthand, union with Christ. Uh, people ask me uh, a lot, you know, how many, how, if you're going to preach the gospel to your family, how in the world are you going to have time when your child's throwing a fit on the floor? You're going to walk through the whole life, death, and resurrection of Christ, substitutionary atonement, and here they are in Walmart kicking and flailing their feet. It's just not going to work, Chris. But there's a reason that Paul gives shorthand statements. You see, he's preached the gospel so much that he can sum it up with in Christ Jesus. 
or the gospel, the good news. I challenge that with regard to our families as well, that we are so focused on the gospel, we can sum it up, and the child begins to understand. Well, this is shorthand for the gospel. How so? Because it emphasizes union with Christ. Ephesians 1, 4 says we've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That is that God has decreed to look at the elect believers in Christ. In Christ. In time and space, we, we hear the gospel. The gospel convicts us of our sin. God grants the gift of faith through the power of the gospel. We trust in Christ. We're united with Christ through the Holy Spirit so that we gain His death on our behalf, His life on our behalf, His resurrection on our behalf, His exaltation on our behalf. It becomes ours. We become His. We're united with Christ. God sees us in Christ, and we look at ourselves in the promise of Christ. This is the gospel. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 1, if you would. I'd like you to see his letter to another uh, Greek cultured church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he's going to unload the gospel against the wisdom and folly of the world. I want you to see verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. There it is. Union with Christ. Who became to us, so who's doing the acting on our behalf? Christ. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So we're not looking at our own wisdom or our own righteousness or our own redemptive plans to outweigh our good with our bad, to pay back our our penalty. We're looking to God's provision for us in Christ Jesus, who's become to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is the gospel. In Christ. In Christ. He's become to us righteousness. Robert Heldon, in his exposition of the book of Romans, says this about the righteousness of Christ. To that righteousness is the eye of the believer ever to be directed. On that righteousness must he rest. On that righteousness must he live. On that righteousness must he die. In that righteousness must he appear before the judgment seat. In that righteousness must he stand forever in the presence of a righteous God. You must be in Christ. For it is in that righteousness that only we can stand in the presence of God. And that brings us to a number of characteristics about this faith in Christ. We're going to draw our attention to verse 3, chapter 1. Only in Christ will saving faith be secured in the presence of God. Only in Christ will saving faith be secured in the presence of God. Any other faith outside of Jesus Christ will not be secured in the presence of God. It won't last. It won't stand before the holy God. And we see this in verse 3, remembering before our God and Father. And I just want to stop there. Every good commentator will note that in the Greek text, before our God and Father, or you could translate that, in the presence of our God and Father, it actually ends this verse. The King James Version actually left the Greek text alone and did a phenomenal translation. It says this, Work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight or in the presence of our God and Father. That's how it fits. I think commentators had a a struggle with seeing Christ between faith and the presence of God and so connected it to their remembrance before God. I would suggest it needs to stay the way it was written. Why are we concerned about the presence of God? Well, if you look with me at Jude 24 and 25, I think we'll get a picture of this. Jude 24 and 25, it's the last book before the, the last book of Revelation, second to last book. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him 
who is able, who has the power to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. How are you, sinner, ever to stand in the presence of of this God who is before all time and now and forever, the one who is ascribed glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. How will you stand in the presence of his glory, much less with great joy? You think a moment for a moment of our rebellious heart and sinful deeds, and we recognize that we would never stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God who knows our innermost thoughts and our heart, Psalm 139. How do we ever stand in his presence? Much less for eternity. In Christ. In Christ. And I think that's the point that 1 Thessalonians is getting at and Jude. Through Jesus Christ. Because we've been united with Christ. Because God sees us in Christ. Covered with his righteousness. Having our guilt paid for. We have the promise and security and assurity that we can stand now in the presence of God because of Christ, and we can stand for eternity in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. Only in Christ will saving faith be secured in the presence of God. And only in Christ will living, saving faith truly rest for eternity. And we notice in verse 3 the statements, faith love, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is resting, trusting, depending upon Christ. And if we think faith is just merely an intellectual assent, he couples it with the triad, faith, love, and hope. This faith trusts and treasures, delights in, adores Christ. That's Christ's point in John 15, that the the branch abides, depends upon the vine. It draws the life from the vine and bears fruit. Delighting, refreshment of the vine, rejoicing in the provisions of the vine. But notice also not only a loving treasure, but also hope, fixed hope, certain hope. This faith, love, and hope are not contributing to anything. They're resting in the fullness and sufficiency of the Lordship of Christ. He says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does this living faith look like that rests and stands in the presence of God? Well, it is a a faith in Christ that comes from the gospel. It's powered by the gospel. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He recognized this faith, hope, and love grounded in Christ is because of the ministry and power of the gospel. It's the gospel that has granted faith in Christ. No wonder he's going to send a gospel worker to proclaim the gospel. If the gospel works powerfully, and through the gospel, the Holy Spirit works powerfully to provide the gift of faith. Isn't the gospel what we would preach to stir and establish and grow that faith in Christ? Absolutely. That faith is grounded in Christ. That love is grounded in Christ. That hope is grounded in Christ. And we have Christ preached to us. And as we see the glory of Christ and his grandeur, faith anchors deeper. Love grows and treasures Christ. Hope is fixed. On Christ. No wonder Paul is about the gospel and encouraged in the gospel and sends a gospel co worker. Now, we want to see the outgrowth of this faith and love and hope in Christ, and we see that in verse 3. What does it look like? Well, this faith that rests works. It's a faith in Christ, and in Christ we stand in the presence of God. This faith in Christ, in Christ, there's a resting, a loving, a hoping in Christ, but there's also work, an outflow, fruit-bearing of that unity with Christ. 
Again, not contributing. It's like the branch drawing from Christ bears fruit. And so we see in verse 3, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Work is the idea that we get the word energy from. A labor, uh, you could use synonyms of toil, exertion, sweat-producing labor. Paul's going to talk about his ministry, that he labored for them in the midst of affliction. How in the world does a person in the midst of their own personal suffering minister to others in suffering and keep at it? Blood, sweat, and tears? The gospel. The gospel. The promises of Christ. How does a person remain steadfast? How does their hope remain certain? The promises of the gospel. I'm amazed at uh, water spiders. I've used the illustration a few times in teaching Psalm 119 and kind of crops up. And as I was thinking through hope, I, I thought through the water spider. It's such a, a unique animal. It has a, a single lung. It's like animals in that it requires oxygen from the air. But what's unique about the water spider is that while it requires oxygen from the air, it lives most of its life underwater. It eats, it molts, it mates, raises its young under the water. But it doesn't have gills like a fish. How does it do it? Well, it creates a little balloon uh, out of its silk, a silk web that it creates and, or makes, spins, would be probably a better term. It goes up and fills it with air and then brings it down under the water, pushing all of the water out of the bubble. It sits in this airtight nest under the water. Amidst the sludge and the goo and the ooze of its environment. I think what an example. Here in the midst of affliction and suffering, the believer is running to Christ, drawing from the promises of Christ. Faith grows, love grows, hope grows, produces work, labor, and steadfastness. So when we find ourselves weak, struggling, or concerned about somebody who's struggling, the recipe, the gospel. I'm going to proclaim Christ to my heart and proclaim Christ to their hearts. Well, this faith in Christ evidences itself in the second visible mark or manifestation of the gospel, the mark of Christ, the mark of Christ. Look with me at verse 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he begins with the word imitate or to mimic. And we've seen our, our children as they mimic our speech. Sometimes we don't know what they're babbling, but we find out as they get a little older, oh, they were just imitating this. We see a son following his mother or father, mimicking their behavior, their actions. It's how they learn how to set the table or mow the lawn. I remember getting a, a little uh, toy lawnmower that had little bubbles, and so my son started with that. Well, I did the big lawnmower, and then pretty soon I brought him underneath. He could hold the little bar, and I pushed him along, and the next thing I, I know, he's pushing the lawnmower. He's taller and bigger, and, and I'm sipping Diet Coke. <laughs> Enjoyed it. It's, it's mimicking. It's the process. They mimicked us and the Lord. And what did that produce in verse 7? An example. The word example, uh, you get the word type from it. Tapon is the Greek word. It's the idea of a mark left by a blow, a figure formed by blows. It's an image or model or pattern. So as the believers in the midst of affliction, in the midst of the fires of affliction that are stirred up around them, they've been thrown into the fire in the midst of that, as they're clinging to the gospel, the gospel's working in their hearts and pressing upon them the image, the character of Christ. And they are marked by imitation and mimicking Jesus Christ. Again, notice the external environment. Verse 6, in much affliction. Not a little, in much affliction. That affliction acts like fire, purifying, but also showing the mark of the character of Christ. That's the external environment. But there's an internal environment within them, verse 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They've received the Word, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, they find great joy and delight. How can that be? Reminds me of Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10, where it describes those who put their trust in themselves, and they become like a barren bush in a desert. 
withdrawn into themselves. No hope, no life. That's what happens when we trust in our mortal, finite selves. But then he contrasts, blessed is the man whose trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. But he's in the heat. He's in the drought around him, but he is flourishing because his trust is in the Lord. To the world, they don't understand. I see the heat, I see the affliction, I see the suffering, but you're flourishing, you're, you're blessed. It's because of the secret ministry of the gospel, proclaiming Christ, and I'm, I'm resting in him, loving, adoring him, hoping in him. That's the internal environment. How can we have such joy? I think we see a little bit of the secret of this ministry of God's word in the midst of affliction in chapter 2, verse 13. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, and notice its power here, which is at work in you believers. So what they accepted wasn't the word of men, so that they put their trust in men, which is cursed and is finite and is changing and is mortal and is corruptible. Not that word, but the living word, the word of God, which is at work, the word from God, the gospel. That's the resource they're clinging to. Going back to chapter 1, verse 5, we see that ministry of the gospel. We've read it already. Let's read it again. Chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you personal visitation of the gospel, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's the ministry of the gospel. This is the power of God into salvation. This is what grounds our faith in Christ for salvation. This is what grounds our faith and grows our faith in Christ for sanctification in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering. There's another mark, a third mark, and that's the proclamation of Christ, the proclamation of Christ. You know, it's amazing when you think about God's work in in believers. He shows the ultimate priority of the gospel in our lives. He raises up affliction, suffering, allows it. We run to the gospel, we see the imitation, we see the mark of Christ, we're encouraged, and we want to proclaim it, we want to boast in it. What is God doing? Well, he's manifesting in our lives by bringing the wave upon wave of trial and suffering that the rock that we stand on is Jesus Christ, and he is our sufficiency. There's a danger of the flesh and of the world to attribute our successes to our own strengths. God knows that. And he visits us with hardship and affliction to remind us that only what lasts is Christ. So we can say within our hearts, Christ alone, Christ alone. And the world who watches us, they don't want to attribute it to Christ. You've seen that before. Someone asks, how in the world does your family function the way it do? How do you live your life? They want some secret 12-step plan. And you say, it's the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. They're like, no, just give me the fruit. But I don't want the gospel. It's got to be these things. Not that you, the fact that you're a sinner and you're trusting in Christ's righteousness. It's the fact that you're a good person. They keep wanting to go back to your sufficiency. And what does the Lord do? He crushes those things. That so you see you're grounded on Christ and the world sees Christ, Christ, Christ. And so we see this third mark, proclamation. Proclaiming Christ. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. I love these themes in Thessalonians. It's not the word of men, it's the word of the Lord. You want to see the power of the word? Look at Genesis chapter 1 where he spoke light out of darkness and there was light. Let there be light, there was light. That kind of power. So this word that is working in their lives, it, it can't stay dormant. It echoes and reverberates outward. It sounded forth. A commentary, a commentator by the name of Lightfoot describes it as a thunderclap that is reverberating and echoing. This word sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So the word, the gospel is working in their heart in the midst of affliction, and then it's bursting forth outward in proclamation like a thunderclap that's echoing. So Paul says, I don't need to say anything. I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged I don't need to exhort you for more. I don't need to admonish you because of less. It's just 
reverberating throughout the world. In fact, Achaia and Macedonia are telling us of what God has done in your life through the gospel. That's an echo. I don't need to say anything. You think of Paul's life and ministry and the Lord, and according to Philippians chapter 4, had plans for him to step into Caesar's household. It was amazing being in Rome recently on our layover from, uh, uh, from I'm thinking Israel, which I was in last February, in India. I'll get it straight. Um, seeing this palace uh, where these great Caesars, uh, kings, would have stayed. It's amazing to think that God raised up the gospel to be preached to the household of Caesar. You know how he did it? Suffering. He bound Paul in chains so that he would be dragged to the prison house so he'd proclaim the gospel to Caesar's household. How amazing. The Lord is big, bigger than we are. I remember one of uh, our leaders here, the Lord had granted uh, a, a cancer and suffering too, and he had made mention that he had had opportunities to preach the gospel in the cancer units in ways he wouldn't have had before. I thought, well, how many opportunities do we have that we don't see because we're so focused on our affliction and not on the gospel's power in the midst of our affliction? Paul's encouraging them to be reminded of the gospel and its proclamation. Fourth, fourth, the service of Christ. So it's proclaimed, sounds fourth, but it's also evidenced in the life and in the behavior. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report, so that's Macedonia and Achaia, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So there's mutual encouragement. Gospel ministers accepted. The gospel is accepted by the Thessalonians. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. How you turn to God from idols. Turned, we get the word epistrepho to, to turn. We get the word repentance from that. They repented. They turned from their trust in idols. What did they, how did they turn from it? They turned to the living and true God. They turned to Jesus Christ, verse 10 tells us. Herein is the, the recipe for the, in, in the gospel dealing with our idols is it exposes those idols for their, the fact they're non-living, they're dying, they're corruptible, they're images of ourselves, and when we run to them, they fall apart, they cannot deliver us. We see the Old Testament echoing this theme, and the gospel points us to the living and true God and to look expectantly to Jesus Christ, who is the deliverer. This is the gospel. It exposes idols and promotes Christ. We can apply the principle even in our sanctification. We find that secret idol creeping up. We know it because we're grumbling, complaining. Maybe our children have got in the way. Maybe a neighbor has got in the way. And we grab onto it to protect it. We realize, I've got an idol going on here. I'm clinging to this. This has become my little sanctifier. What in the world? I need a healthy dose of the gospel. I need to see the glories of Christ. I need to be reminded that he's the living God that our hearts are turned to repentance to look to Christ. On my the little tour at the Colosseum in Rome, the tour guide commented that the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica, that they had built that and much of the adornment surrounding that had been taken from the Colosseum. I thought, that's interesting. What, what an irony and what a symbol. And here's a Colosseum marked by death and blood. And the Vatican borrows that to build this humongous courtyard that houses the Roman Catholic leaders. Well, the other thing that amazed me was looking and seeing all this construction going on and then these statues, these immense statues surrounding the Vatican, but seeing one side of their face worn down from the wind and, and the rain. I thought, wow, what a picture of idolatry. We work so hard to keep up our idols that they're in vain. Human religion is this way. It cannot deliver. Paul says it's the gospel, the promise of Christ. 
Now, this service that, that is marked by the Thessalonians, you see it also with Paul in his ministry. So I'd like you to look at the character of Paul's ministry. Because the gospel is the gospel, he is a proclaimer. He doesn't need to manipulate. He doesn't need to, in arrogance, uh, compete for their affections as somehow he's the leader and needs to be followed. He promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ with love and care. Look at the nature of this gospel service. Uh, drop with me down to verse 4. Again, coming out of this gospel that he's declaring in verse 2. He says, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Idols will, will bring about a fruit of the pleasure of man, not the pleasure of God. Verse 5, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. It's the difference between an idol ministry and the gospel ministry. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You see the character of this gospel ministry when the gospel is at work in the heart, grounding and growing faith in Christ. You see love and affection and service and labor and toil, not for the pleasure of men, not for self-satisfaction, not for self-flattery or the flattery of others, but the glory of God. So we think backwards. What does my ministry look like? Is it my ministry? Is it marked by flattery, the pressure and approval of men, the glory of men? And I need a healthy dose of the gospel. And my week in my service and my labor and ministry can't press on, turning inward. I need a healthy dose of the gospel. The gospel marks one as this, a servant of Christ. Well, we'll move over to the fifth. And these have to move very quickly. Fifth, manifestation of the gospel in a Christ-centered life, a gospel-driven life, is the purity of Christ. And we've dealt with chapter 2 and 3. We're going to move on to chapter 4, verse 1, and just cover a a few of the verses here. Purity of Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, there's our shorthand for the gospel, based on your union with Christ, all the provisions in Christ, That is, you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So his exhortation for their walk and their motivation to please God is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say, muster it up in your own strength, try to walk, try to please God. He understands that it's rooted and grounded in Christ. He must proclaim Christ as the motivation for the walk and for being on guard against sin. Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God is not called as for impurity, but in holiness." Holiness is used of God's transcendence, that he's otherly, he's different than us. He's another being. He's the creator or the creature. And so we use terms like majesty to describe his holiness. It's different. Holiness also describes being set apart unto him from sin. It describes a moral relationship. He's saying this is God's will. Verse 3, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from sin. Control your body in holiness and honor. You ask, well, how do I do that when these temptations are unslotting me day in and day out? Remember your union with Christ. Remember the gospel. That's how he starts it out. He doesn't just say, do these things. He says, I exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would recommend that you read Ephesians and Colossians with that in mind. He doesn't start with put off, put on. He starts with who you are in Christ. His faith grows through the gospel. It reminds us of our sphere, our union with Christ Jesus. There's a sixth character and manifestation of the gospel in a Christ-centered life, and that is the expectation of Christ. 
the expectation of Christ. Now, we can look at this text, and I would assert that we draw comfort from the fact that Christ will rapture, take up his church before the day of the Lord, before his judgment upon the world. But that's not where we're going to go this, this morning. We're going to note that the promise of Christ involves his presence with us. It's the delight of Christ, and it's anchored in the gospel. Because if our union with Christ is the basis upon which we're saved, and it's obvious that our union with Christ and our salvation is the basis for the fact that we're going to be united with him in glorification. So when our hope is waning, when we're forgetting to look upwards to Christ, we need the gospel proclaimed to our hearts. Let's see this in chapter 4, 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, gospel talk, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 16, the very end there. And the dead in Christ, union, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You see this, his presence. And so we will always be with the Lord. It's not just about the fact that he's coming. It's the fact that we will be with him and he with us. Union. Oh, to be with my Savior. He says in 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. That's where the encouragement is found. Anchored in the gospel. Reminds us of his coming. To be with us. He does it again in chapter 5, verse 8. Gospel, the promise of his presence. Chapter 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing presence of christ because of our union with christ and salvation gospel 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 we're a generation that has access to the bible we press a button on the internet click of a button you get 200 300 bibles esv nas kgv on we go wasn't always that way england was locked out from god's word because it was written in latin and depended on the interpretation of roman catholic system until men like wycliffe And Tyndale had a burden to translate the Bible into English. And Tyndale did it at the cost of his life. He was first hung and then burned at the stake. Why? So that you and I would have the word of truth, the gospel. For only through the gospel will we ever stand in the presence of God for eternity. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. May we not assume it. May we run to it again and again and again to be replenished like a branch draws from the life of the vine. So we draw from the promises of Christ and we remember and remember and remember Christ's perfect righteousness, Christ's perfect death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's exaltation on our behalf. We rest in him. We boast in him. Christ's name.